Hello, and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast, episode, episode 43. 43. This is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas, and today I'll be taking a look at the television miniseries, V, the original miniseries from 1983. Written and directed by Kenneth Johnson and based on the dystopian novel, It Can't Happen Here, written by Sinclair Lewis. And I, um, I know I usually discuss films on this show, and I think V is a uh, is going to be a nice detour from the types of uh, types of stuff I usually talk about. Um, this is V is a science fiction miniseries, and it also is made for television. And I don't really talk about TV too much, but I am a big fan of V, the original miniseries. So it came out, I believe it came out the same month as The Empire Strikes Back. Just to give you an idea of like where in time it existed. So if you're a fan of John Carpenter's They Live, uh, 1984... The 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, or just Star Wars in general, uh, particularly the original trilogy, or even Handmaid's Tale, or even David Icke's theory that the Illuminati is a race of reptiles. <laughs> I think you would get a kick out of V. And basically what V is, is a, um, it's an alien invasion story. But it's not so much aliens show up to Earth, they pose a threat, and then we get into a giant uh space battle where there's a lot of ships flying around and explosions and you know something you would see in like modern day Star Trek or it's it's not so much like that it's more of a um, slow methodical sort of pre well V for Vendetta which uh I don't know what the connection is between V for Vendetta and actually V the miniseries. I don't think there's any connection, but I just find it interesting that V for Vendetta, it was written and the movie was made after, long after V the original miniseries uh, was on television. But it does deal with a totalitarian government kind of coming to power, but being influenced by this alien species that seems is seemingly a friendly, helpful <laughs> race of aliens. But um, of course, that's never the case. Of course. So, yeah, V is more of a aliens come to Earth and aliens gain the confidence of world leaders in the media. And to a certain extent, uh, humanity, you know, the regular people, but they, 
kind of slither their way, pun intended, into positions of uh, influence. And, uh, and with that influence is how they plan to enslave humanity. So, so let's get into the show. Let's get into the show because it is a two-part series. But first, I'd like to um, just kind of give you an update of what's going on here. I have upgraded my studio space. It is currently, I'd say, 80% complete at the moment. I have a larger studio space now. And um, I've already been working on um, some shows in here. I did a Patreon episode. If you uh, go over to patreon.com forward slash skeleton factory, you can see my most recent review with my uh, dear friends, Whitney and Vanessa. And we uh, discuss the film Bodies, Bodies, Bodies that is currently in theaters. And um, also, uh, this is mentioned on uh, the Skeleton Factory Instagram. And that's at at Skeleton underscore Factory. If you want to keep up with the show there that's where i put most announcements and i also put it on twitter at sf podcast a t x and that is on twitter on the patreon uh, i if you become a patron you'll have access to skeleton factory patreon episodes a week uh, before they're just released for free So if something new comes out and you want to listen to it and, you know, if you you become a patron, you can uh, listen to it immediately. But if uh, you don't want to become a patron, (laughs) you can just wait a week and then you will get the, uh, the episode for free. So I figure that's pretty fair if you're a listener of the show. But I do appreciate your support because your support helps me do things like have a bigger studio space and have guests on the show and things of that nature. So uh, if you have contributed in any way to the show, I, I thank you and it's very much appreciated. So again, that's um, at patreon.com forward slash skeleton factory. But let's jump into the show now. V opens up in a village in El Salvador during the Salvadorian Civil War. So (laughs) when this was made, the Salvadorian Civil War, uh, let's see. So this, okay, this show came out in 83. And the Salvadorian Civil War, I I believe, began in 82, so, so Kenneth Johnson, I mean, that, that is about as, that is about as current as you can possibly get. He just squeezed the Salvadorian civil war 
directly into the show. And we are introduced to television. Um, I guess he'd be like a video journalist named Mike Donovan. He's like a camera operator. And Mike, uh, Mike Donovan is played by actor Mark Singer. And uh, with him is his boom mic operator, Tony Wachong Leonetti. Played by Evan C. Kim, who you may recognize from the Clint Eastwood film Deadpool. Not the Ryan Reynolds Marvel film Deadpool. There was another Deadpool. And it came out in 88. The same year as They Live, actually. So that'd be a good double feature. If you want to watch some films from 1988, you can watch Clint Eastwood's Deadpool and They Live. (laughs) That would be a great night of movies right there. But uh, yeah, Evan C. Kim played... uh, Harry Callahan, Clint Eastwood's uh, character, he had a, his partner, Al Kwan, and um, yeah, Deadpool. It's it's a it's a good series, and if you really have the time, watch all of the Dirty Harry films. They're fucking great. So Mike Donovan, he's kind of like um, I don't know, he's like a. I mean, he's a, he, I mean, he's a journalist, but he's kind of like Private Joker in Full Metal Jacket. Like, he's a combat correspondent. So he'll go to, like, gnarly parts of the world just to get footage for the purposes of informing the public. So the opening scene is like the, uh, the kind of like the hostage rescue scene from Predator. Except, uh, um... <laughs> well, in Predator, um, all the hostages die. I think <laughs> it's when they, uh, when Arnold and Jesse Ventura and Bill Duke and all the other guys show up, um, and they just blow up that entire village. Like <laughs> it's it's like one line of dialogue where it's like, "Oh, all the hostages are dead." <laughs> like it's a surprise, but. Uh, yeah, it kind of looks like that scene. It's just like this sort of uh, these these rebels are fighting against. Um, pre- presumably, it's the Salvadorian government that are uh, just destroying this village uh, through attack helicopters. And so, Mike and Tony are there covering all this, and. Um, I mean, the whole scene's great. I mean, you got helicopters, you got explosions, a lot of gunfights. It's it's wonderful. And Mike and Tony escape uh, the village uh, under fire. So they uh, they grab this uh, a rickety truck and they they basically drive out of the uh, the village. But then um, an attack helicopter. Um, Sees them like it get, them leaving gets the attention of this uh, attack helicopter and begins uh, following them. A chase ensues and Tony um, gets shot, but it's uh, it's only in the shoulder, so he's fine. <laughs> because there was a period of time in movies that if you just got shot in the shoulder, like you'll live, but. Um, I don't know. I don't get it. 
like getting shot in the shot. I mean, I of all the places you could be shot, I, I don't know why movies were like, yeah, getting shot in the shoulder, like it won't kill you, even though it totally could kill you. It won't kill you, but you could still like use your arm and, you know, do action scenes. It's like, just have somebody punch you in in your shoulder, but not not in the side, not where the meat is, but in the front, where the 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 ball and socket connect. Just have someone punch you there, and see how easy it is to move your arm around. Okay, now imagine like a fifty caliber round from a helicopter hitting your shoulder. That's <laughs> that's basically what happened to Tony, but he's fine, you know. But you, you know, uh, <laughs> so so after this, they 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 the they end up flipping over the truck, and uh, Mike pulls out Tony and is basically runs into this like nearby river to like draw draw the fire draw fire away from from Tony so that he can escape so he can like kind of like run off into some woods and armed with nothing but his video camera Mike starts filming the chopper that's about to blow him apart so he's having this standoff with this helicopter and all he has is his camera and he's filming it presumably is like if he gets killed at least some footage will exist of the uh, Salvadorian government's murdering an American journalist. But the chopper turns around and takes off. But why? Mike turns and we get our big reveal of a massive flying saucer floating over the horizon uh, in his direction. And it's massive. It looks like a a large vanilla French macaroon just floating overhead. And Mike Donovan is he's he's a hero man in this series. So the, basically, this whole this whole opening scene in the um, during this civil war in El Salvador is basically to demonstrate that Mike Donovan is he is brave under fire. He is heroic. And he, in, in that, how he uh, protects and um, his friend Tony, but also has uh, journalistic integrity. So even though all this crazy shit is going on, he's still there to get the story. So this whole scene, it's loud. And there's explosions and stuff like that. But it really kind of sets up the Mike Donovan character of like, oh, this guy, this guy is going to be our hero. So after, the, after this, we get the opening credits and then we get introduced to an ass load of characters in like rapid succession. So I'm going to try to name as many as I can, at least ones that I feel are probably the most noteworthy. There is a ton of of people in this show. So there's going to probably be some people that I just don't even bother mentioning uh, because they're really just side characters that really aren't adding much to the story, really. So I'll just try to focus on the <laughs> the characters that matter the most because this is quite a long story. So pay attention 
very carefully. Starting with the character of Juliet Parrish, played by Faye Grant, and you may know Faye Grant. She was uh, she was the character of Rhonda in a uh, show called The Greatest American Hero, which is a show from the eighties that I really enjoy. Um, along with V, along with V, which was more wasn't like a full blown television show. Um, Greatest American Hero was like a regular television show in the 80s. And I watched that when I was a kid. And in my like early 20s, I was at a buddy of mine's house. And we were, uh, <laughs> we were center. This is, this is, this is what the early 2000s were like. We, uh, we sat there and we watched the entire first season of 24 in like one sitting. And after we were done watching it, um, we watched, I think it was the first series, or at least it might have been, we probably watched a few seasons uh, in a row of The Greatest American Hero, and the actual box set for it was great because, okay, you get a big box set, and in it is, uh, you get a, like a replica of the main character's cape, it's like this red cape with like his superhero logo on it. It was fucking fabulous. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> so Juliet Parrish, Faye Grant, she was Rhonda and the greatest American hero, if you ever watched that. Um, and her character is that she's like a very bright med student. So she's like, I don't know, she's probably, you know, 19, 20, something like that. And it, her whole thing is that she's incredibly bright, uh, medical student and um, and because of that we can introduce other characters that are uh, scientists doctors whatever at the uh, at the med school and it and it kind of bleeds over into like other things in the story so um, for instance uh, there's the character Ben Taylor which I, I think he's a doctor I'll just call him Dr. Ben Taylor. And he's played by uh, Richard Lawson, who you'll recognize as, uh, I think his name was Ryan, in the original Poltergeist. Ryan, he was the black dude with that like black and red striped shirt. And he, <laughs> it's like when they show up and Craig T. Nelson is like, uh, he's like, let me show you our upstairs. Because like all basically all the like ghost hunting people show up and... Uh, and Richard Lawson's one of them, right? And uh, he's like, let me show you upstairs. The upstairs room, like, we don't go in there anymore because it's so fucking haunted, right? And on the way up there, uh, Richard Lawson's like, he's like, yes. He's like, one time I filmed, I forgot what it was. I don't know if it was like a table or a chair or something like that. He's like, it, it moved across the room. It moved like five feet across the room by itself. He's like, but I had to film it with a, uh, like a time-lapse camera. So it's almost imperceptible that you even see it move, but it took like five hours to like go across. They covered this distance of five feet. And he was like, that was, that was pretty intense. That's crazy. Like that's, that's a poltergeist. And Craig T. Nelson is just looking disheveled as fuck. Just kind of looks at him and is like, like cool story, bro. And then he, 
when they get to the, the room upstairs, he opens the door and like all the fucking furniture and shit in the room is just fucking floating and swirling. <laughs> and, um, yeah, he's like, Craig T. Nelson's like, no, this is what a fucking haunted room looks like, bro. And, um, also, there's there's another connection to Poltergeist other than uh, Richard Lawson being it. The, I believe the original actress that was to play... Maybe it wasn't Faye Grant's character. Maybe it was Faye Grant's. I, I don't recall. But one of the actresses that's in V was also the daughter in Poltergeist. So I think she was shooting both simultaneously. But then she ended up getting uh, killed. She got murdered. So Poltergeist and V had to uh, completely go back and reshoot all the scenes with, you know, that character. So that's sad. But, you know, there there, there is a connection between uh, Poltergeist and V the original miniseries. So at the uh, at the med school, you know, we got we get, we get introduced to Juliet, and then uh, Ben Taylor runs in, and uh, he turns on the TV, and 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 this is where we kind of get our news. This is how all the other characters uh, get revealed to the this now alien UFO presence in the world. And the news informs us that identical spaceships to the one that uh, Mike Donovan um, recorded out in El Salvador, these, there's identical spaceships that are appearing in major cities all over the world. And they appear in the form of like animated uh, matte paintings. <laughs> but so, yeah, some of the special effects in, uh, in V are. Uh, maybe not fully realized or, or quite at the potential they could have been. <laughs> and, and some of the UFO shots are kind of, they're, they're a little wonky, but it's fine. It works for, you know, the story. It doesn't affect the story, really. But I do love that they in, incorporate the idea of all these different characters that don't know each other are watching television and they're seeing images of UFOs appearing in like, uh, you know, in London and, and, and fucking, I think was it China and France, like all over the world, Germany. So, uh, you know, you get all these characters, <laughs> you get all these characters crammed into a, a room together and they're all just watching a TV and they're watching a news broadcast. So it's a really good way of just letting us, the audience know that all these people are witnessing the same thing in real time. So then we cut to archeologist, uh, Robert Maxwell, uh, played by Michael Durrell. And he's digging, um, he, he's digging a plastic Halloween skull out of the side of a cliff. <laughs> He's an archaeologist. It's him working and, you know, he's, you know, using paintbrushes to lightly, you know, dust the the artifacts of artifacts out of the side of this cliff. And he sees the flying saucer uh, hovering over L.A. So 
it's um, it's basically the beginning of Independence Day. And and I'm totally convinced. Like if you watch V, and you're a fan of Independence Day, it's like, oh my god! Like this is Independence Day is massively influenced by V, especially the whole like UFOs appear all over the world, and you get these reaction shots of people like panicking and freaking out and loading up their cars and just driving out of town and. Um, so the beginning of this movie is very much like the beginning of uh, Independence Day, minus the scene, uh, in SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, um, detecting the ship, uh, hovering over the moon, which I thought to be very strange. (laughs) That's one thing. That's one thing that I didn't make sense to me in Independence Day where it was like, they, they captured a signal from where the location of the moon is. And that's where they detect the first uh, one of the spacecraft. And I guess presumably these they, they fucking detected the UFO before like the government did. I don't I don't know how that works. But that's not what happens in V. In V <laughs> There was no early detection. There was no one knew that the earth was surrounded by flying alien discs until they were like literally hovering, hovering over Los Angeles. It's kind of goofy, but you, you, the movie, I'm sorry. The, uh, the show is at such a, at such a nice pace that you kind of don't, think about that detail that that like nobody knew that these UFOs were even anywhere near earth until they were literally like hovering over major cities um but you know it's if if you don't think too hard about it and it's not that big of a deal that's another downside to this new studio is uh I can hear um, sirens outside, so it's okay. It adds some grittiness to the show. <laughs> so we jump to the character of Elias Taylor, who is the brother of Ben Taylor, except uh, Elias uh, Taylor is not quite as uh, successful as his brother. He's not a doctor. He's not a scientist. He's um, <laughs> we're introduced to him as he's breaking into a house. So he breaks the window. He jumps into this living room, and um, <laughs> that's how he's introduced. And he's played by uh, Michael Wright, who you'll recognize as the um, if you ever watched uh, Oz throughout the uh, gosh, I guess it was nineties and early two thousands. And the uh, it was an HBO show about a prison uh, called Oz, and um, he uh, like Michael Wright played the character of Omar White, and uh, he was in a bunch of episodes, and he's a really good actor, and uh, he was also I think the first time I've ever seen uh, Omar. Well, <laughs> Omar White's his character, but um. 
Michael Wright, rather. Uh, Michael Wright was in a movie starring uh, James Belushi called The Principal. And it's basically this, and this was kind of a trope back in the days. It was like uh, a rough high school that's ran by basically gangs and criminals and everyone who goes to that school is like a bad kid. Um, you know, the whole school gets cleaned up and turned around because one principal comes in. Sometimes it's a teacher, but a principal will come in and basically clean house. And, uh, and usually in the course of having to like turn the school around, the principal will have to like engage in physical combat <laughs> with some of the more gang affiliated uh, students. So uh, anyways, Michael Wright uh, plays the, he plays like the main bad guy in the principal. That's one of those movies that was, I mean, it played on the HBO all the time and um, I I'm sure it played on TV and stuff like that, but it was, it's, it's entertaining. <laughs> if you get around to um, watching uh, some James Belushi movies, <laughs> you can watch The Principal. You know what? While you're watching The Principal, you can also watch another James Belushi movie called uh, "It's Called Real Men," um, where he co-stars with John Ritter. Rest in peace, John Ritter. And uh, yeah, so enough about that. So. So Elias Taylor, he's uh, breaking into a house, and while he's inside, he's uh, you know he's stealing shit, um, and he turns on the TV, and the t- as soon as the TV comes up, he sees a report about uh, you know the UFOs in every major American city and pretty pretty much every major uh, city in the world. Uh, so pretty much all the other characters are introduced. In uh, like one scene after this, it's like in I'm assuming it's in some type of LA suburb where all where all of them conveniently live on the same street. <laughs> so, uh, like I said, they the show just introduces a shitload of characters just in rapid succession, just like boom, 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 boom. Here's all these people. You're gonna see a whole lot of them. So let's just introduce all of them right off the bat. And like I said before, I'll just, I'll get into all the other characters as they pop up as the story goes along. Cause it's just more efficient that way. So the UFOs have made their presence known and they are now just, uh, they all like stopped. Like they're all just hovering over these cities. Now they're just floating in midair. And, um, the, the UFO, the UFO starts, creating this like pulsating sound, this pulsing sound from all the UFOs. It's, it, they all start doing this in, in, in unison. And this is followed by a, um, a vocal countdown. So depending on which uh, part of the world you are in, whatever the primary language that is spoken, um, the countdown will be in that language so if you're in germany this 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 voice that's counting down from i think 20 
it will be in German. And if you're in the United States, uh, they'll be counting down from English. And so this, this countdown's happening, and people are just watching this on TV, and they just don't know what this countdown is counting down to. But once the countdown finishes, um, it is followed by a message this voice that is inviting the Secretary General of the UN of the United States. Because, of course, if aliens come to Earth, they're going to be dealing with the United States. <laughs> That's The United States represents the entire world. Um, well, I mean, they kind of explain it. They're like, we want to we, we invite the Secretary General of the UN to meet us aliens on the roof of some building in New York and um, the secretary general of the UN is basically a, a it's a diplomat uh, role. So they, this is exactly what they do. They, they go, they speak to people in other countries on behalf of the United States. So when the aliens show up, they are basically, um, they know enough about us to, uh, they know how to speak our earthly languages. They understand there's a thing called a UN and um, that's in order to have some type of, uh, I don't know, peaceful diplomatic dialogue. You need to just talk to the Secretary General of the UN, I guess. So this voice is like, oh, hey, Secretary General, um, come meet us on top of the roof at this time in New York and uh, bring the media and uh, yeah, it'll be a whole thing. So a small media pool is allowed on top of this building in New York. And in that pool is our friends, Mike Donovan and Tony convenient. And uh, also we get introduced to Mike's old fling, Christine. And um, she's, They established pretty quickly that her and uh, Mike had a, like a had like a thing, but um, Christine was very ambitious and couldn't she couldn't hang with the idea of being tied down in a relationship. Like she was, she was very career oriented. So, but she still has googly eyes for Mike, and I think Mike is uh, once bitten, twice shy, but does still hold um, some feelings for Christine, but also, you know, understands her uh, career aspirations. So So the Secretary General arrives under heavy guard, and um, the mothership that's hovering above the... It's like Independence Day. (laughs) Big ship appears, hovers over a building. A bunch of people go on top of the building. And then uh, the ship fucking uh, murders everyone in the city. (laughs) But not in V. No. Um, The mothership opens up. And a smaller craft floats down from the ship down onto the roof. And um, I would say, like, the design of the ship is, it's great. It's its not very, like, Star Wars-y, you know. Like, Star Wars was 
a very lived in kind of, uh, at least from a rebel's perspective, like everything was very dirty and ships were just kind of held together with whatever they can hold them together with. And, but, um, but this, you know, the little ship that comes down is it's very clean. It's very sleek. And the door to the ship slowly opens and a voice calls out to the secretary general to go enter the ship. So he walks up and goes into the ship for a few moments and then he exits and he addresses the media who's there. They, he, he assures the cameras that they, that these, um, that these visitors, these aliens, they come in peace and, um, they want to address the people of earth. So he introduces the leader and the leader when he comes out, because at this point we don't know what the aliens look like. So when he comes out, um, the, the leader whose name is, uh, he goes by the name John and there's a whole thing. Well, they, they kind of have these, uh, vocal, I don't know, they, they they speak English and they sound human, but they have this kind of weird, uh, this kind of like weird, uh, I don't know, a distortion to their voices. And he's basically, basically like, oh yeah, we got our own language and um, it may sound really weird to you. So um, our alien race has been monitoring Earth for a long time, so... And where we've picked up on your customs and things like that, so we've um, we've adopted kind of like common Earth names, so that you can, so you you know we can um, speak to each other better. So he takes up the the name of John. He's like, I am John, and um, he says that he is not like the main leader. He's like. He's like I. He's like I'm basically like an admiral, so I I do have some authority over some, you know, some of the, the many fleets of ships that they have. But there is there is a, a suggestion that there is there are commanders that are above John's level, but John is more of like I'm the guy who comes to make contact with Earth, and John is smooth he's like just he's kind of like an older middle-aged dude and um and john says he says all the right things we come in peace we want to um have a pleasant exchange of of our cultures and john can just talk you out of your panties and he he basically explains that his planet needs earth's help they need earth to help manufacture a certain uh, type of uh, chemicals that will help save his planet. And in exchange for helping them, these uh, alien visitors will share all their knowledge that, you know, the, basically the, the everything, all the knowledge that they have scientifically and, so that we on Earth can fix our uh, global warming or climate change or whatever whiny assholes fucking say nowadays. (laughs) 
He's a, he's a basically will help you save, uh, uh, will help you fix all of your agricultural and health dilemmas and will make everything fucking great again. Basically. I mean, presumably give you information on how to make flying spaceships that can go to other parts of the universe. <laughs> and it all sounds totally silky smooth when John says it, but... When you think about it, <laughs> they they these aliens can't solve their worldly problems, but they can somehow solve ours. And I don't know. It seems fishy, but it's presented in such a way where they're like, we come in peace. And Earth is like, oh, my God, they come in peace. Isn't that great? And everyone's like really stoked about what's happening. And, you know, a couple of characters show a little bit of uh, skepticism, but for the most part, people are just like, wow, this is really amazing. But if you think about it, you're just like, I don't know, these, these aliens, what do they actually need? Or like, what do they want from us? Really? So Mike Donovan and Tony and Christy and a bunch of other people, they are invited on board to their mothership. So they get inside the small kind of a transport vehicle and they float back up to the mothership. Uh, Cause John's like, like, Hey, you know, we want to be completely transparent about who we are and we all should get to know each other. Cause this is kind of a big deal that we're, you know, meeting a similar planet to ours. So we invite you aboard our mothership and you can take a look around and bring your cameras and just, you can ask us questions and all this stuff. And it seems like an ideal situation. So they go up, you know, they, they go up uh, into the spaceship and they basically do, you know, they take a tour and they video the whole thing. So later Mike and Christy are at her place, sort of like celebrating this whole thing. Right. So you don't see them actually like going onto the ship or anything like that. It just kind of cuts to them, like leaving to go on the ship and then later them over at Christy's place. So they're at uh, they're at Christie's and they're looking over the footage from their tour of the mothership, and it's it's kind of an ingenious way to show off the ship's interiors because um, it's like you watching the show are watching the characters watch a, a small TV, so it was a really good way to kind of hide. Uh, things like miniatures and and uh, matte paintings, you know, <laughs> that are supposed to represent like the inside of this massive, vast alien spaceship. And the um, there there's footage of uh, like the hangar. Where they all their trans their little transport ships are uh, where they basically they dock. Um, it was is it, great because it actually was a fully like all the little transport ships were fully built ships like they were as long as like as like a city bus they were huge right. It's the same one that I that lands on top of the roof of the building too. It's like it's not like it was some like phony like a model of a ship on fishing string, just landing on a road. Like they built a whole fucking giant 
ship so that when you see them going in and out of the ship, it's like it's like a fully built thing. So the actual hangar that's supposed to be inside of the mothership was like a real room that they built this huge room and it's got a bunch of ships in it and it's got all this equipment and it's got, you know, visitors, you know, the, the, the aliens are like in there and they're like working on the ships and stuff like that. And you can, you can see that in some of uh, Mike Donovan's footage that they're going over and it fucking, it's, it's really cool. It looks great. Especially on a small eighties television screen. <laughs> and the visitors start getting, Cozy with politicians and corporate heads involved in uh, helping refine the chemical compounds needed to save the visitor's planet. And visitor workers become integrated with human workers. And there's some natural prejudice and and an adjustment period for both visitors and their earth workers. So we get a few scenes of that sort of um, the uncomfortableness and having to work with people who are culturally and in this case uh, different in terms of species. <laughs> and there are um, like there's one character uh, named William who's a, a visitor and he's kind of a lower level worker that's working in one of the like chemical factories and he's played by uh, Robert England who you may know as Freddy Krueger. And so this was, this came out in 83. So pretty much after Robert England did the V, um, after he, he did V, he basically jumped straight into what would become a nightmare on Elm street. So that's, again, that's kind of laying sort of a timeline of where uh, V is in terms of the eighties. And, uh, so yeah, Robert England is a character of William and he's a visitor worker and he's been, he's definitely, uh, kind of received some kind of, uh, I don't know. I don't know if xenophobic is the right term. (laughs) He's been basically given the cold shoulder by the, uh, character of Caleb Taylor. Who's, he is the father of Ben, Dr. Ben, uh, Taylor and Elias Taylor, who was the, uh, the dude who was, you know, uh, the fucking cat burglar guy who was breaking in the house earlier on. So this is their dad, which is great. This show is also just incredibly convenient in that way that everyone knows each other through like one degree of separation. <laughs> everyone on earth knows each other by one degree of separation. It's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I know it's a little too convenient, but it's it's fine. But um, so basically, Caleb and uh, and William they end up uh, kind of they they kind of kiss and make up after William saves um, Caleb's life from this like dangerous work accident. There was like this area where there was this like uh, cryogenic chamber, and uh, somehow uh, Caleb got trapped in there. And it began to, um, there was like a, um, there was basically like a, like a leak that was freezing the room and Caleb couldn't escape. And William ran in there and saved him because, uh, William has the ability to, uh, well, his ability to be completely unaffected by like a, like 
minus 240 degrees. Um, so after this, like him and Caleb kind of like kiss and make up and it's like, like, Hey, you visitors are, you guys are all right. You know? So that's, you get to sort of touching moments like that where not, not all the aliens, all, not all the visitors are like evil and bad. Like some of them are just like kind of lower level <laughs> trying to, trying to adjust to a new land and they're just, they're just working. Okay. They're not like part of the elite. So there's definitely a hierarchy and, um, in the visitor world, they're not like a collective, you know, they're not like the Borg or something. Meanwhile, scientists around the world are starting to mysteriously vanish. Also other scientists and, um, the media are fanning the flames of the, of this earth scientist conspiracy. Okay. So there's this conspiracy out there that there is earth scientists and people in the scientific community are spreading lies and disinformation about the visitors as well as, as, um, they are also suppressing sort of breakthrough medical research in order to get money for other things. So they're basically character assassinating people in the scientific community who maybe are not, are not completely with the, um, with the program, <laughs> with, with the program to um, integrate these visitors into our world and to help them save their planet in exchange for, you know, learning all their alien technology. So, so the UN and the visitors are requesting all scientists. And this was this. Okay. <laughs> there was a whole thing where the leader, John goes on TV and he's like, okay, the UN is teaming up with the visitors and they're requesting that all scientists on earth are required to register their whereabouts with the authorities. Hmm. That's, that's, that's not good. And here's what some of that sounds like. The world was shocked today when Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Morris Jankowski of the Brussels Biomedical Institute in Belgium held a press conference to reveal the existence of an international conspiracy against the visitors. It came to my attention first when Dr. Rudolf Metz in California uh, asked to speak with me on what he called urgent confidential matters. Other colleagues of mine here are also being approached by scientists, primarily biomedical and anthropological scientists uh, from many nations who apparently are part of this insidious conspiracy. Their plans, quite simply, are to cease control of several motherships belonging to the visitors. They tried hard to convince me that this was to protect the human race or to keep such powers from the military on our planet. I do believe, however, that their motivation is by far more personal. Then Jankowski signed his statement, listing those who he claims tried to bring him into this conspiracy. When word began to spread of the Jankowski statement, the international scope revealed itself as scores of medical scientists around the world came forward to admit they had been approached or actually confessed that they were part of the conspiracy. Seen here is Dr. Jacques Duvivier, also a Nobel laureate, 
physician and leading biochemist in Damn France, scientist. who was detained by the Sûreté, the French police, and has confessed to his involvement, naming many other scientists as his co-conspirators. wants to make it clear that while he's sure all scientists around the world aren't part of the conspiracy, it is still difficult to ascertain which of them may or may not be. In other news, while international police have scoured scientific files for facts on the conspiracy, some startling evidence is being found that many scientists have actually had major breakthroughs in research which they've suppressed. Senate Medical Affairs Committee Chairman Raymond Burke had this to say. Yes, indeed, I do have evidence that new and revolutionary cancer treatments do exist and have existed for some time, along with many other breakthroughs, which apparently our scientific friends kept quiet about and haven't shared with us. Well, I won't speculate except to say that there's a lot of money to be made in research grants. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have no... So again, the... The visitors have been able to uh, infiltrate and uh, kind of bring uh, onto their side, uh, you know, members of the UN, governments from around the world, media, etc. And Chrissy, Christine, keep calling her Chrissy. Uh, Christine has also been seduced uh, into being sort of the mouthpiece for John, the uh, visitor leader. So now, um, she's basically, she's kind of a correspondent in a way where she's sort of like has this exclusive deal where she will communicate, um, the visitors, I mean, lack of a better term, propaganda to the world. But, uh, I mean, she's a known television personality, you know, she's sort of the human face to the visitors plan so every time there's some kind of like announcement on television it's the visitors um communicate through christine so the waters start to get muddy and some of the visitors seem to have uh, nefarious intentions and some seem to just be kind of cogs in the machine that are just doing their job and aren't high enough on the food chain to be known to to be they're not high enough on the food chain to know about some of the evil plants. They're just kind of, they just do what they're told all the while. Um, good old Mike Donovan isn't just going to accept the mainstream media's interpretation of current events and decides to go undercover. And he sneaks onto um, like the mothership. Well, at least one of the motherships, the one that's, um, um, so he takes one of the sm- he just sneaks on one of the small transport shuttles and gets up to the mothership and he sneaks on to basically dig up some truth of what's going on because he can kind of see through some of this shit and he's like okay something's going on but I'm not going to really get any answers unless I get in there and get some foot hey, Mike Donovan is like the uh, the James O'Keefe of <laughs> the V world. So um, once he gets onto the ship, and I love the interiors of the ship. It's not too alien and sci-fi looking. It's um, and it's not too like Star Warsy looking. Like it, 
it it does kind of it, it looks like um, the visitors sort of a lot of their technology and their sort of aesthetic a lot of it sort of kind of uh, parallels humans so things don't look too crazy like rooms are rooms and there's doors and the you know, light fixtures look kind of similar but they look kind of sci-fi kind of futuristic kind of alien but not it's not overboard Mike Donovan's like sneaking around and he manages to sneak some footage of Diana and this other visitor uh, kind of like leader dude he's kind of like middle management so this guy named Steven and Steven's kind of, he kind of uh, he's kind of the head like uh, on earth like uh, like when the visitors are being integrated into working in like factories and stuff like that he's sort of like the main manager foreman dude so Mike Donovan is like getting some secret footage of Diana and Steven um, having this conversation. And uh, actually the, the, the character of Steven is uh, played by actor uh, Matthew Prine, who uh, played the uh, Reverend Jonathan Hawthorne in the movie Lords of Salem, the Rob Zombie movie. So, and I mean, he's been in a lot of other stuff too, but I'm a Rob Zombie fan. So I just have to point out, <laughs> and I, I can't help but think that Rob Zombie was a fan of V and was like, can we get can we get that guy to play Jonathan? And Jonathan Hawthorne was like a real guy. He was like one of the main um, kind of judges during the Salem witch trials back in the like 1600s. So, yeah, so that's that's who the that's who Stephen is. He's, he's that guy. If you've seen Lords of Salem, and in one of the um, one of the more kind of memorable scenes of the uh, of the series is this scene where Stephen and Diana are discussing. Um, Diana, uh, she's kind of like she invented this uh, conversion, what they call a conversion process, and it's essentially brainwashing, where they brainwash. Um, they're able to brainwash kind of uh, sort of leaders on Earth to kind of get them to do things that they want to do. And they also use this conversion process to get people to commit the crimes they didn't do just so that they can kind of form this narrative. And, and this is the narrative. Um, also this whole brainwashing process for conversion process is a, is a little unclear, but I'm, I'm fine with that. It's, you know, whatever. So on basically, um, on one side is politicians, corporations, and the media promoting that a conspiracy of scientists on Earth that are sabotaging work sites that are working to help uh, or sympathize with the visitors resulting in terror attacks with heavy casualties. And on the other side is the actual conspirators themselves, some of which have confessed to crimes and confirming that there is in fact a group of organized and hostile members of the scientific community who wish to uh, bring harm upon the visitors and their human comrades. Now, both these sides, um, <laughs> both are actually creations of Diana and John who served at the will of this sort of unseen leader that they mentioned, but you never see the leader. And basically these two sides were 
created to divide and conquer the people of Earth by turning the governments, the military, and the media against them. So people of Earth kind of see that there's sort of two sides going on. There's sort of like, there's the good side, which is the visitors and the people working with the visitors. And then there's like this subversive group of deplorables who are anti-visitor and want to uh, sabotage the visitor's work and uh, the work of the people working with the visitors. And and both sides um, are actually creations of Diana and John who serve at the will of their unseen leader. We never see who the leader is, but... Um, their, their plan is to divide and conquer the people of Earth by turning the governments and the military and the media against them in this sort of like hyper-military-industrial complex that would make Dwight Eisenhower shit in his coffin and then roll around in it. And so they're basically creating a crisis, a crisis of the good people, quote-unquote good people, who are um, the people who are trying to help the visitors and the people who are against that. But all the while, both those sides are not real. They're just, it's, it's basically a smoke screen to kind of convince people watching TV that, Oh, we should help the visitors. They're good. And they're helping us and we're helping them. And we're, you know, it's this peaceful exchange of, of cultures and yada, yada, yada. And then there's people who are just like, like, boo, I don't, I don't like those aliens and we should get rid of them and we should do everything we can to, uh, to uh, sabotage and fuck up all their efforts. And, but really it's, this is all like, it's like Diana kind of created all this. She's sort of the, uh, um, she's like the Henry Kissinger of, uh, the visitors. They admit, they admit to planting evidence, like real agent provocateur type shit. Realizing they can't convert to every human on Earth. The visitors know that armed militias of Earthlings and possibly dissenting visitors are bound to rise up. So on the wall are these clear acrylic cubby holes with small animals, rodents and such. Steven casually reaches in one of these little cubby holes and grabs a mouse. And then he swallows it whole. Kind of weird. We get a little musical sting to uh, denote how uh, shocking and weird it is. Then Diana strolls over to the wall and grabs a gerbil. You know, a gerbil. It's uh, bigger than a mouse, and it's about the size of a puppy. And she unhinges her jaw like a snake and then stuffs the thing down her throat. And the effect that they used to do this looks kind of goofy and corny, but it conveys the point that whatever these visitors are um, is a bit odd. <laughs> uh, they're, they're probably not as much like us as that was probably uh, than we thought, really. Because uh, <laughs> they look human, right? So now that most of the people in the Western world 
know what wet markets are. <laughs> I think the scene may not pack quite as much punch as maybe it once did, but I still love it. I'll take silly practical effects over bad CG any day. So, uh, so Mike slides over to uh, the next room and then he begins videotaping through like a vent in the wall. And inside is, um, in this room, it's sort of like a living quarters. It's a, just a random visitor who, uh, he goes over to the mirror and he removes his, um, he removes his, looks like he's removing his contact lenses, but he's actually removing two false human eyes out of his head to reveal, he turns around <laughs> and it, and it reveals he has like these yellow reptilian eyes beneath. So the visitor turns around, he sees Mike through the vent and then like reaches through the vent and yanks him out through it. And then a fight ensues and the visitor hisses at Mike and is is whipping his forked tongue at Mike and tosses him around the room with, uh, with ease. Uh, The visitor throws Mike on the ground and starts choking him. And Mike starts uh, clawing at the visitor's face, causing the skin on the visitor's face to start to peel and eventually start peeling off, revealing reptilian flesh, like green, scaly flesh beneath. And since Mike Donovan is Mr. Hero Man in this story, he manages to throw the visitor off of him, get to his feet, and then bitch slaps the reptilian with his big-ass video camera that was uh, filming the whole fight. And he manages to get away. So, he manages not only to get away, he manages to get into a transport ship and make it back down to Earth. And he brings his smoking gun footage to the uh, news network to show the world... That they're being conned by a bunch of lizards. But the visitors are able to... <laughs> like, literally, they, they do, like, a countdown. Like, three, two, one. And right as they're about to show uh, Mike's footage, the whole signal at the station is hijacked. The TV signal's hijacked, preventing it from being aired. Instead... Uh, a broadcast signal intrusion by the visitor, John. Sadly, the message from John seems less like fiction than it once did in 1983 when this came out. And here's what that sounds like now. Your national leaders have suggested that a state of martial law will be most helpful at this time. And we agree. Police at local levels will be working with our visitor patrols, and we will also ask the help of all our visitor friends' units everywhere. All right. We anticipate this crisis will pass relatively quickly. In the meantime, friends, I and my fellow visitors will do our best to see you through it and maintain control. There will be more announcements later. So it's real red scare... 2020 COVID hysteria level shit. And it's some of the most based shit that you can watch. <laughs> v is really fucking, it's, um, 
I don't know. It, it, I mean, I want to say that it's, you know, it parallels today and it's, it's, it says something about, um, what happens when totalitarianism starts to creep into our lives. And, and, and there's characters in this that try to, you know, ignore what's going on. Like, Hey, maybe everything will be okay. Maybe everything's going to work out. And some characters are like, you know what? This doesn't affect me. So I'm not even going to worry about it. And yeah, it doesn't affect you until it does. And, um, and by the time you even try to do anything about it, it might be too late. So (laughs) V the original miniseries, very base. It's like, it's like if the Daily Wire made a sci-fi movie. <laughs> but um, so now we have now there's like the the they live vibes start creeping into V and um, a small group of citizens began meeting in secret to figure out a way to fight back against the visitors. And they're led by uh, Juliet and um, Dr. Ben Taylor. So, you know, in their sort of fledgling stage, they don't know exactly how they're going to be able to fight back against them. But they know that since the visitors are rounding up all the scientists, that they worry that the scientists are some type of threat to them, can figure out how to defeat them in some way. So, um, but, you know, we, it, it's, a, it's basically that we have a scene where they're all kind of they meet up for the first time and they're figuring out like, OK, what do we need to do to, you know, even begin to start a plan to defeat these fucking aliens that have spaceships and laser guns and shit. So so while that's going on, um, Mike Donovan is now a fugitive. So once he took the footage to the news station and then they hijacked it they basically aired a thing saying that he's a fucking criminal he's a traitor he needs to be stopped and uh, he's dangerous and assume that he's armed like yada 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 so now mike donovan is like on the run so uh being he's being chased down through the city streets being shot at by these like minivan looking spaceships and it's a it's a whole thing and uh, we also get this like uh, subplot. Um, like I said uh, earlier, <laughs> I'm probably not going to bring up every single character in this. I'm just kind of going to bring up uh, enough of the most important characters so that we can so you can get an idea of what the show is. So you can actually go and watch it yourself and experience it. But there's all these sort of subplots with uh, interpersonal relationships between you know families and friends and things like that. And that's all really good stuff too. That really kind of fleshes everything out from it just being like a dumb monster movie. And, um, one of the subplots is, um, about this Jewish family who ends up hiding a family of a scientist in their, like this, uh, this like little guest house in the, you know, in their backyard. And husband, wife, and they also, they have a son who's sort of like in the, (laughs) the visitors sort of have these, this like group for human young people who are, it's basically like the Hitler youth, but for the (laughs) the visitors, you know, 
And um, so this Jewish family, their son is involved with it. And um, their, you know, the husband, his father lives with them at the house. And he's a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps from World War II. And we have this scene where his son fears the consequences of hiding this family of this scientist in their backyard that they're going to, they're going to get caught. You know, they're going to, they're going to be, you know, found guilty of conspiring with fucking, um, you know, possibly dangerous scientists, fucking terrorist people or whatever. And, uh, the, we get this great scene where the, uh, the dad, the older, the elder patriarch of the family, he explains to his son that, um, when, uh, he and his wife had to escape, Germany, uh, they had, you know, they had to put him when he was a baby into like a suitcase when he was like eight months old to smuggle him out. And I guess the, uh, the old man, he told him that he told his son that, you know, uh, his mother died of a heart attack when they were, I guess being, they were trying to smuggle him out of, uh, Germany. And he's like, that's not what happened to your mother. He's like, your mother got taken to the concentration camps and he's like, the last thing I remember is her standing in the rain naked with her head shaved being led into the gas chambers. He's like, that was my, and her waving goodbye. That was my last memory of her. So he's like, we have to hide these people who come to us for help because, you know, like we didn't have, we didn't have someone who can hide us. You know what I mean? Like we, you know, he's like, I was barely lucky to get out of there with my life and we have to do it because it's the right thing. And he kind of turns the, uh, turns his adult sons and kind of changes his mind. And it's, it's a really beautiful scene. So there's a bunch of stuff like that in the, in the story. And, but, um, you can just go experience that for yourself. It's, and it's not corny. All of it is like well acted. It's believable. And, um, it's good shit. It's good shit. It's it's a very well balanced. Um, this miniseries is very well balanced, and it has a shitload of characters. So it's like balancing out all those people. It's it's done very well. Also, uh, the uh, group, <laughs> the group of insurgents led by uh, Juliet and um, and Doctor Ben Taylor. Uh, they they. They get to a point where they're like, okay, we need equipment. We need to basically have like a base. We need to get a hold of medical, uh, well, basically scientific equipment so we can, you know, start working on how to uh, beat these fucking reptiles. And the group risks stealing important medical equipment from this building to find a way, you know, to uh, whatever their fucking plan is, right? And, um, but as a result, when they try to get away, they they're basically get caught as they're trying to get away. And um, Doctor Ben gets uh, he gets shot and killed, and uh, his death sort of activated his younger brother uh, Elias, the one who's like the uh, the cat burglar, the thief guy, uh, to join the insurgents because it was a whole thing where he's like his brother, his doctor brother was always such a goody two shoes. And is and at some point his brother did come to him to be like, you need to join us, you need to help us. And he's like, he's like, you know, like when you were out becoming a doctor and going to medical school, like maybe I needed your help, but you didn't have time for me. He's like, I don't, 
So now I don't have time for you and all this shit. And it's one of those things where he definitely has some guilt now because he's like, I, I could have helped you guys steal whatever you needed and no one probably would have got killed. But now he like watches his brother die after getting, you know, shot by these uh, fucking lizard people. And now he's like, well, fuck, I got to join up with you guys. I got to help you guys because I don't want my brother to have died for, you know, died in vain. And it's sad. Yeah, it's sad. I like, uh, <laughs> like when I first saw it, I, I was, I was like, oh no, I can't believe Dr. Ben died because he seemed like a really capable guy. He seemed like he was mentally and physically going to be like more of a character kind of leading the charge in this little fucking fucking domestic terrorist cell <laughs> but he just ends up getting fucking shot and he dies um but that sort of but that also kind of like boosts like dr ben dying kind of boosts up the juliet character because she's young and she doesn't really know what she's doing but everyone kind of turns for to her for answers and but she does have like a natural leadership quality to her so people go to her because she's smart and so she's it's a good scene where it's just like she's not some fucking invincible fucking chick who's like has the answers to everything and can fucking you know beat the fuck out of everyone <laughs> like when dr ben got shot and killed she actually ended up getting like shot in the ass <laughs> so it's like you know there's 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 state there's, there's real stakes to what they're doing and it's it's risky everything they're doing it's not like they're having Star Wars type laser battles where like no one's getting shot. None of the good guys get shot. They just are able to evade a million fucking laser blasts. But like people actually get hurt doing this. And um, between her getting shot and Dr. Ben getting killed, like it really kind of boosts her up as a character. Is like, like when this group of fucking insurgent people, you know, they, they're, they're about the cause and they fucking respect her as a leader. And it's like, they built her up really, really well. And I, and I like that a lot because it ends up being important later on. But we can talk about that again in part two. <laughs> um, so I'm actually going to uh, cut this off right here. And then I'm going to um, finish up V, the original miniseries, on episode forty. Three, I highly recommend V, the original miniseries from 1983. It's, it's, uh, I mentioned this in the beginning, but I, I really got to emphasize like who, like who is this for? Cause I can see somebody watching this and being like, this looks old and hokey. But if you watched like eighties action TV shows, like it, it does kind of look like a TV show, but it also is like it's it's fucking it's really good. It's very and they play it very straight. It's very serious. So I would say if you're a fan of They Live, um, if you're a fan of 1984, if you're a fan of uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, particularly the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, starring Donald Sutherland in a and Jeff Goldblum. And and even if you're a fan of like Star Wars or even Star Trek, um, 
I don't know. I, 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 I think in the beginning of the show I mentioned Handmaid's Tale, which I'm actually not the biggest fan of Handmaid's Tale. But um, the idea of like a totalitarian government ruling over people and uh, stripping away people's fucking rights and, you know, people having to fight back uh, against it, you know, in kind of clandestine ways and stuff, I think is kind of Handmaid's Tale-ish. And... <laughs> I know I brought up David Icke earlier, but I was kind of serious when I brought it up where I was just like, I know enough about David Icke to know that, um, he, he, I mean, he's kind of the guy who popularized the idea that, that the, uh, the, like the Illuminati is a bunch of reptilian people. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I, you know, I think David Icke saw V and was like, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's I, the 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 ruling class of the world is probably lizard people. So, <laughs> anyways, um, I will uh, check you all on episode. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, th- yeah. I'll see you on episode 44 because this is episode 43, and um, uh, you can follow me on Instagram. At skeleton underscore factory. That's kind of where I, I mostly do most of my posting of stuff. It's where I do promo videos and where I when I it's where I announce most of the shows and stuff like that. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. I just got on Twitter recently, but I'm I barely look at it. Uh, but that might change. I don't know. And I'm on Twitter at sf podcast a t x. That's at SF Podcast ATX. Uh, you can also help support the show at patreon.com forward slash skeleton factory. And just so you know how the Patreon works, I will uh, release a Patreon episode. And then a week after I release it, I'll just make it available for free. So if you're a patron you can listen to an episode a week before everyone else and if you just want to not pay anything and just listen to it for free you just have to wait a week and then it'll come out and i actually have a new one coming out um tomorrow for um i i did a uh, episode on um the the film bodies 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 and i it's a it was a lovely discussion with uh my dearest friends um vanessa and whitney actually vanessa's my wife especially i guess she's also my, my dearest friend as well but um that'll be up on patreon uh for free starting tomorrow so um yeah so i guess that's that's all you need to know Anyways, I will catch you guys on the next one. I am Adam. This is Skeleton Factory. And of course, I'm here to rescue your movie night or your television watching night. One movie or television show at a time. Bye. Bye. Bye.